Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a bird aficionado perfect for this episode. Lacey Smith is here. How's it going, Lacey? Hello, George. It's going well. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to have you here. I know that horror isn't something that you're watching like every day, but why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with it? Yeah, so my family was pretty, well, I was a pretty sheltered kid growing up, so didn't watch a whole lot of movies outside of like Disney, musicals, that kind of thing. (laughs) So definitely not something that I shared as a family pastime. Um, (laughs) I, I swear I remember like the first scary movie or the first scary part of a movie I saw I remember it vividly. It was like I saw uh, the bit of Lord of the Rings in a hotel where Galadriel has access to the ring and she becomes like dark oh. and scary. And oh, that yeah. like <laughs> that really scared the <laughs> shit out of me. Um, so I was a pretty like I think I was a scaredy cat for a long time. And I just like didn't want to watch scary movies, wasn't interested in anything remotely scary. But um, somewhere along the way that changed and I like uh, started wanting to expand my film horizons once I honestly once I was like out of high school and out of the house so yeah I think I I recall probably late in high school going to see the crazies in theaters oh yeah um that was that was my uh first I think I think that was the first r-rated movie I ever saw and I was probably 18 so that that gives you a little bit of context but (laughs) that movie was fun and then I think that was around the same time that um district nine came out Mm-hmm. I think it's District 9, uh, like, set in South Africa and with, yeah. I guess it has aliens. I don't know. So these were all my <laughs> my first forays into, like, non-family-friendly, non-wholesome films. Those are those are intense ones to start out with, too. I mean, there's some really gross body horror in District 9. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, The Crazies is an intense slasher, so yeah. pretty, pretty jumping right in. <laughs> Truly. I, I think I was really just trying to impress, like, the group of friends that I hung out with. I was like, yeah, cool. I'm down to go see The Crazies. Like, this is fine. <laughs> this will be fine. And then, I don't know, I, I, I think that kind of, like, cemented for me that I actually am not a person who scares very easily. And as long as there's, like kind of a veil of unreality in a horror movie it it usually Mm -hmm. doesn't bother me the next day or like when I'm trying to sleep that night so yeah from there I kind of tried to expand my horizons and it's still not something I like watch often but I I really do enjoy a lot of the new crop of horror and uh I'm trying to expand my horizons into older stuff too Nice. So when you came across the movie that we're talking about today, which is The Birds, I'll just say it right now, is that because you were trying to expand into horror stuff? Or was that just a result of your general enthusiasm for birds? Because, you know, a lot of people, especially who are getting into horror at a later point, sort of dismiss a lot of the older stuff like Twilight Zone, like the Hitchcock movies. And I think that a lot of them are still really incredible. I think that Psycho is still an incredible, incredible movie. So I'm curious about sort of how you wound up going down this path. So this is very odd because I remember I saw the birds in seventh grade in like my English class. And I I don't remember why we watched it. I don't remember like if there was a curriculum uh, <laughs> unit that it was pegged to. I like when I was getting ready to do this, I reached out to a friend from school and I was like, why did we watch the birds in seventh grade? And she was like, Dude, I have no idea. So we we have no idea why we did this. I assume it was tied to like storytelling in general and like story arcs and exposition and you know could the, be could the be. Typical, it's also like, it is based on a novella. So perhaps you read the uh, the novella. I I wonder. I wonder if we did. I don't recall it. But um, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's possible. We watched a lot of like film adaptations of books that year. So that is entirely possible. But yeah, so I saw this when I was like 12 or 13. So a prime age for me to be really scared. But um, yeah. I think even then at that time, you know, technology in film had advanced so much that, you know, I was probably able to create that veil of unreality for myself so that I wouldn't be too scared. And I've I've never been afraid of birds anyway, so it didn't (laughs) it didn't bother me too much. I do. I do remember seeing the the guy with his eyes pecked out, which I'm sure we'll get to. But that was that was a pretty strong image for seventh grade. But but yeah, I, I hadn't seen it since then, and I, I thought it would be a really fun choice because since seventh grade, uh, I've become more of like a bird watcher and interested in, in ornithology just casually. I want to let's let's have a disclaimer. I'm not an ornithologist, <laughs> so I cannot well, speak authoritatively. On the, based on the attitude of the ornithologist in this movie, I'm going to say <laughs> that's a good thing. Yeah, for real. Oh, my God. Love her. Love her. Yeah, no, I'm just I'm interested in bird watching. I do it as a casual hobby and I'm interested in birds in general and their species and all the interesting characteristics and the different kinds. So um, I thought it would be really fun to revisit this from a, a perspective of being more into birds, the actual science of them and see yeah. how it held up. And it was so fun. Definitely. And I, I think that this will be a really great episode because we're coming at this from two very different perspectives where I wouldn't say that I am scared of birds because I'm not, but okay. I would say okay. that I don't trust birds. Sure. Um, okay. They're, their movements very quick, That's and fair. they're very fragile. They have hollow bones. Yes, <laughs> and it makes me very nervous. Yes, true. That I'll accidentally hurt one. Uh, so fair. Uh, I just, uh, you know, it's it's just not something that I ordinarily surround myself with. So definitely, we'll be coming at this from all perspectives. Uh, I'm curious, do, what is your actual favorite bird? Um, it kind of varies all the time. I I have a tattoo of a cedar waxwing. Uh, which is a pretty common bird in North America. It's what, for me, it's what birders refer to as their spark bird. Um, Mm. So like what got them into bird watching. And for me, that happened when a big flock of them uh, landed in my trees when I was in grad school. I was casually interested before that, but that really got me into it because they were like a cool species that I hadn't noticed before. So I, I love cedar waxwings. I live in Chicago and we have a pair of endangered piping plovers nesting on a beach in Chicago and they're very adorable. So it changes every day, but I say those are two of my long running faves. Nice. I would say that mine is the blue footed booby. We went to the Galapagos as a family and uh, seeing them do their little dance was just so funny. Uh, They're so cute. And like my mom and I, this is, oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to say this. This is the fucking dorkiest thing. We have matching tattoos. (laughs) We got blue footed boobies doing the like the dance. And they have, like, fun purple sunglasses on. No way. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. I love that. I love it. So I'll, I'll put that in the show notes for people when, they, uh, when yes, this please. episode comes out. But That's amazing. Uh, yeah. Uh, those, are, those are two great birds. I, I've also been keeping an eye on, on those endangered birds up there, the plovers. They're, the little chicks are very cute. Oh, so um, cute. They're little and, cotton balls with legs, with toothpicks definitely. for legs. So cute. <laughs> One, one last just general horror question before we jump into the actual movie is I know, you know, when you said that the ones that got you into horror were the crazies and District 9, but those are two pretty disparate movies. <laughs> is there a genre that you find yourself more drawn to within horror, like uh, that you find yourself more drawn to? Like, 
since you like that veil of unreality, are you like, oh, I like paranormal stuff or, uh, you know, more over the top slashers where it's, you know, that kind of thing? I think I'm open to watching most things, but I... I'm not a big slasher person. It just it gets a little bit too gratuitous for me sometimes, uh, depending on the film. But I do like the like cerebral horror movies. Like, I mean, I don't want to say like Hereditary, but like like Hereditary. <laughs> hey, it's um, a great fucking movie. Well, yeah, it's honestly the only example I could think of. But I didn't actually <laughs> like it that much because of that oh, wow. veil of unreality. Oh. Um, right. The um, I don't want to don't want to blast any spoilers here but like the one of the initial deaths in the film is very like grounded in like a medical emergency um and that stuff really freaks me out um so that that scene truly disturbed me not even from the way it ended but honestly just the the leading up to the, the the climax which was gross but um the medical stuff was more disturbing to me uh, than, oh, I totally than agree. anything else. I totally agree. Yeah. But I, I really like, like, The Shining was one that I really wanted to see, and I really enjoy that. Nice. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of open to watching anything, but, yeah, kind of the, the newer ones are fun, and, but like I said, I still have a lot of back catalog to work through, a lot of interesting Definitely. stuff. Definitely. Well, uh, I think that you have made some amazing choices already with your uh, with your movie watching, and of course, I love the movie that we're talking about today, Alfred Hitchcock's 1963 movie, The Birds. The Birds. Uh, we're talking about the master of suspense. This movie is based on, like I said, the 1952 novella by Daphne du Maurier, but adapted by Evan Hunter to add more characters and flesh out the plot in a way conducive to the silver screen, especially considering the more explicitly pessimistic ending of the book. Although originally the ending of the movie was less ambiguous as well. As far as writing, Hunter had previously worked with Hitchcock on Alfred Hitchcock Presents, his anthology show, uh, which I also greatly enjoy. I used to watch it a lot with my dad. Do you know what Um, the ending of the original novella is that's so much darker than the film? uh, I believe it's that, like, they get actually trapped there. And, you know, in, in, I mean, I'll I'll just jump ahead to the ending of this movie. (laughs) Uh, Sure, why not? Yeah, they, uh, they're like on the radio, they hear that there are some roadblocks and stuff. And, you know, there's all the birds watching them. But it's not, you know, they're they're still moving. And so there's kind of this like, well, maybe they'll get out. And uh, I don't believe that's the case in the novella. Okay, Um, gotcha. And uh, this movie has a bevy of stars, including uh, Rod Taylor as Mitch, who was also Pongo in 101 Dalmatians, Uh, Jessica Tandy as Lydia, who you might know from Fried Green Tomatoes or Cocoon, Suzanne Plachette, sorry? So good. So good, Jessica Tandy. She's really amazing. And uh, Suzanne Plachette, who was in the Bob Newhart show and is Yubaba in Spirited Away, plays Annie, and Veronica Cartwright, who is in this playing Kathy as a little girl, but... She went on to be excellent in both Alien and Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which are two just absolutely top-notch movies, and she's great in both of them. Oh, so cool. And, uh, and it's, it's really funny because, like, watching this movie, she still has a very, like, similar face to what she wound up with growing up or, like, uh, when she was an adult. Like, she didn't change that much. And so watching her as, like, a kid, you're like, why do I know this kid? <laughs> <laughs> Who turns is out this? because she's in yeah it turns out because she's in two amazing movies that's why that's awesome well, three, alien is really on my list 
I think it's really, really that's great. on my list for sure. Perfectly uh, encapsulates that uh, veil of unreality, to yeah. be sure. So. Right. <laughs> and uh, finally, the, the star of this movie is Tippi Hedren in her screen debut. I don't want to get sued by the Hitchcock estate, so I will preface this next bit by saying <laughs> that the following is all alleged, but also I believe it. Sure. Despite his impressive work on the silver screen, Hitchcock is well documented to have been, for lack of a better word, a scumbag. And his relationship with Tippi Hendren is a huge part of it. Hitchcock consistently acted inappropriately towards her, including behavior described by the casting crew as obsessive, with Hedren herself saying that he suddenly grabbed me and put his hands on me. It was sexual. She wound up having to reject Hitchcock's advances on numerous occasions, and he didn't take it well. Following this rejection, Hedren was misled about safety on set several times, including she got an injury during the filming of the phone booth attack scene where a pane of glass shattered on her and and cut up her face. And she also says that she was misled about the logistics of the final attack sequence where mechanical birds were replaced with real ones at the last minute, which, God, that just sounds absolutely terrifying. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) To be expecting, like, animatronic robots to be just, like, flapping around gently, and then all of a sudden you're in a room trapped with... I mean, that ending scene has got to be hundreds and hundreds of birds. Yeah. Uh, So Not uh, cool, Hitchcock. Not cool. Not cool at all. And it's, uh, you know, been suggested that this was deliberate and and vindictive as revenge for rejecting him. Yikes. Um, yeah, uh, Hitchcock also signed Hedren to a seven-year contract with this movie, uh, which restricted her ability to work. Uh, she wound up making Marnie with him as well because of that contract. These allegations didn't come up until his death, but have been endorsed by her co-star Rod Taylor. Hedren's daughter, Melanie Griffith, also claims that Hitchcock's abuse extended to her when he played a quote-unquote prank by gifting six-year-old Melanie with a wax figure of her mother in a miniature coffin. Oh, <laughs> so, no. Oh, no. Yeah. Doesn't sound like a very nice guy. Oh, no. You know, this is, I think, one of those things where terrible people make some great art, and sometimes you got to just disavow the person, and I think that that's the case here, where, you know, he's he's made some incredible work. I I think that, like I said, Psycho is absolutely incredible. Rear Window is a favorite movie of mine as well, but it's not worth making incredible movies if people don't feel safe on set, so... We condemn you, Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> um, Hashtag Me Too, Alfred Hitchcock. Exhume him, bring him up, and <laughs> hold God. him hold him accountable. But regardless, this movie at the time even did get mixed reviews. Uh, a lot of people responded poorly to the misanthropy that sort of seeps out of every pore of this movie. However, in 2016, The Birds was deemed culturally, uh, historically, or aesthetically significant by the U.S. Library of Congress and was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. But more impressively, it's the only Hitchcock movie to have been featured in Mad Magazine. All right. So, yes. So, <laughs> so Alfred E. Newman... He, he knew what was up, but despite that sort of negative reception by critics, it was successful, perhaps based strictly on the power of Hitchcock's name, because by this point, he'd already made Strangers on a Train, Dial M for Murder, Rear Window, Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho, and several others. So it's crazy to think about like just how much influence this guy had, but... In 1963, they gave him $2.5 million to make this movie, which, adjusted for inflation, is $21 million. And, boy, he is really working with it. I mean, there's a ton of these 
just beautiful landscape shots and and like we said there's a ton of uh like birds and and animatronic birds and shit but the idea of him getting this much money is uh is pretty staggering yeah. Yeah, and it did it it was a success like I said. It made 11.4 million on that budget, which again adjusted for inflation is 95.6 million. So, pretty impressive numbers. He did it again. <laughs> he did it again, Hitchcock. <laughs> the majority of the birds seen in the movie are real, although they estimate that more than $200,000 of that budget was spent on the creation of mechanical birds for the film, which is wow. like the idea of that someone working so hard on these like mechanical birds and then being like, yeah, we're just not going to use them. Oh, you know, yeah. that guy has got to be disappointed. But yeah, hopefully he got to keep uh, them as decorations. Oh, yeah. But so the the person who was in charge of the live birds used in production was Ray Berwick. Uh, and he wound up training and catching a bunch of them himself, including literally just going to the San Francisco dump to catch gulls, <laughs> which is a very funny image uh, to me. It is. But, um, that's the best place to find them. They are trash birds. So hell yeah. That's hell the place yeah. you go. And Look for gulls yeah. at the dump. Next time you're trying to make a movie with a ton of seagulls in it. There you go. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. <laughs> Bud Carlo. Uh, Bud Excuse me. Bud Cardos also helped catching sparrows for the attack scene that we'll talk about later. But he couldn't catch enough sparrows, so they did have to go and buy additional ones from the local pet shop. Which I like the idea of walking into a pet shop and being like, "Yeah, can I have uh, forty sparrows, please?" <laughs> to be like, uh, "We need them to attack Tippy Hedron." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hope they were treated humanely after the after the wrapping of yeah. this film. I hope so too. I, <laughs> I didn't see anything uh, indicating the opposite, so I will, for the sake of my own yeah. <laughs> uh, edification, say yes, they were. Yeah. How um, cool would it be to own a sparrow who had had a cameo in The Birds? I mean... Pretty pretty sweet. You could auction pretty those damn off. sweet. One other thing that I thought was really interesting about sort of the logistics of The Birds was that they didn't use any score. Instead, what they did was they used the electroacoustic mixter trotonium. <laughs> it's a mouthful. To, uh, to, yeah, that is a mouthful to uh, create these bird sounds and they use diegetic sound like people playing the piano to counterbalance the intense silences that are both frequent and effective. But Mm -hmm. using this weird instrument to make these bird sounds, I think, first of all, it is very impressive how close it sounds to actual bird calls, but also, or at least to me, an unexperienced (laughs) bird listener. (laughs) No, it sounds good to me too. But I think that they also do have like a slightly off quality that I think gives them a little bit of an uh, otherworldliness that I really like. There's like a little bit of that electronic sound to it, which kind of puts me on edge a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely thought that as well. It's kind of robotic and eerie, but also identifiable um, as birdsong. It's really cool. Definitely. And the scary birds start off right away because the opening credits <laughs> has a bunch of birds just like fluttering to and fro. <laughs> Yep, yep. <laughs> You're like, which side are they coming in from? So many birds. Um, but uh, we open up and we see Tippy Hedren's character, Melanie Daniels, walking to a pet store in San Francisco. And there is a huge swarm of birds circling the sky. Like, it's even mentioned between the pet store owner and Melanie where they're like, wow, how about that giant swarm of gulls out there? <laughs> Look at all um, those gulls. My God. Yeah. <laughs> I also want to point out that this pet store has a tree with several monkeys for sale and oh. even more inside. Yeah. There's also a toucan. <laughs> so, In a very tiny 60s, cage. A very small yeah. cage for a toucan. For sure. You yeah. Know, all those monkeys were around were a bit troubling. <laughs> running, Just running <laughs> loose around the store and 
<laughs> in little little glass enclosures with like a little yeah. stick for a tree. Hmm. I don't know about not, that. Not ideal. Not, not ideal. ideal at all. <laughs> but uh, she heads into the store, and like I said, they they talk about this giant swarm of seagulls, and they discuss her delayed delivery of a minor bird, uh, almost as if it's acting up somewhere, perhaps. Mm, so. <laughs> curious. Um, Yes, indeed. And in walks handsome lawyer Mitch Brenner, played by handsome actor Rod Taylor, yes. <laughs> looking yes, to buy lovebirds for his sister Kathy. Sorry, what was that? Absolutely. Very handsome. Oh, yeah. And he's looking to buy lovebirds for his sister Kathy's 11th birthday. I. It's funny, how, how old is like, Mitch now? And how old is his 11-year-old sister? And how does, how does this work exactly? <laughs> that, was a, that was a confusing point for me. It is very noticeable. I mean... It, <laughs> regardless of at what point of an adult he is he is at least out of graduate school oh yeah he's he's 40 he has to be 40 and his little sister is 11 and his mother looks so young so i don't know i don't know how it works incredible i don't know, I don't know. but he he's in there and that he makes a really uh great joke uh, this joke really tr- cracked me up where he talks about not wanting lovebirds that are too dem- uh, demonstrative <laughs> yes for an 11 year old you wouldn't want that plus i mean just like I, I thought that was like a fairly risque joke considering what i expect from something in the 60s so yeah yeah it was very funny mitch pretends to think that melanie is a shop employee and she goes along with it as a prank but the pranker becomes the pranky Mm-hmm. When how the tables get, have turned exactly and uh things get heated after he reveals that he recognized her from a newspaper report about another prank of hers that wound up breaking a plate glass window i would love uh melanie daniels prequel where she's just going around pranking the city of san francisco oh oh that'd be great that would be incredible she loves a prank um, she sure does she sure does and mitch leaves without buying the lovebirds he came in for partially because things do get heated a little bit but i really love the shot where you see melanie sort of scheming and her plan comes together tippy hedron is just absolutely fantastic in this movie so she has this plan she calls her father's newspaper to have them find out who he is via his license plate which does seem a little bit like an invasion of privacy Uh, you know the 60s exactly it's the 60s it's for a prank her daddy's rich and powerful he knows all the information (laughs) exactly and she orders the lovebirds in order to deliver them to him the following day and so the next morning lovebirds in hand she does deliver them to mitch's apartment and i love this tracking shot here it's really awesome where the focus is on the birds in the cage as she walks instead of on the humans and you're literally only seeing legs at first not just hers but like the people that she's passing as well i think it's a really fun shot as they as she walks into the apartment building and then it sort of pans up as she gets into the elevator just really just great technical filmmaking yeah (laughs) and and melanie's good-natured amends making prank of buy the birds for him i guess (laughs) takes a turn when a neighbor reveals that mitch is out of town because he spends every weekend at his family's farm in bodega bay sure a normal person would stop there and simply return the lovebirds but is she a normal person absolutely not she loves her prank and she's gonna carry on that's right and she does exactly that she drives there along the coast we get some more really beautiful shots like i said the landscapes in this are just absolutely gorgeous because it is filmed on the west coast you get these really great bay shots and she has the lovebirds in tow i really really laughed when it showed them 
like shifting on the perch like a normal yes. passenger. <laughs> so good. There's so many funny moments in this movie. It's it's just really funny. Yeah, it it really is. It has a lot of dry humor to a lot of the parts of it, which I think is uh, you know, a, a Hitchcock hallmark. A Hitchcock yeah. hallmark. <laughs> yeah. I loved when she said, I don't remember when in the movie this comes if it's later than what we're talking about now, but I love when he calls her poor innocent girl and she says i'm neither poor nor innocent i thought that was a very good comeback and a very good a very good writing (laughs) (laughs) and yeah she she is great and she gets there and she finds out where mitch lives and in order to learn his sister's name stops to meet the local teacher annie hayworth although we don't know it yet in the movie annie is mitch's ex but ended it due to mitch's mother who's extremely cold and overbearing in particular to the women in mitch's life which Leads her to act kind of sus in this moment, but still genial enough. And she does a little digging, but decides to help Melanie out still, which is nice of her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And back in town, Melanie rents a boat and crosses the bay to discreetly leave the lovebirds at the Brenner farm. And, like, I just think it's super charming seeing her run around like this and, like, hide to watch his reaction. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and just that she can operate the boat. I really thought there was going to be a boat operator in there to, like, guide her. Hell no. Nah. But she knows how to fucking run the boat. Like, she turns Hell on yeah. the motor and she knows where to go. And she remains perfect looking through every second of it. She sure does. They, just they, incredible. The, the people on the dock seem to feel similarly where they're not expecting her to be quite as competent as she is. Yeah. But she, like you said, not a hair out of place by the time she gets there. No. And, not even um, a little bit, like, damp around the edges of her fur coat i mean Mm -hmm. you just couldn't pull it off with more panache than tippy does you simply must respect you must (laughs) you must um mitch does spot her however through some binoculars and he hustles into town to meet her at the docks he really Um, hustles it's very charming yeah he boy he friggin' hops in that in that car and drives down there and also it's like it's like a village basically it's not even like a town yeah and so there's like the one road, and so this guy barreling down the road is like that's its own horror, man. You gotta take road safety seriously, Mitch. Oh yeah. <laughs> same with same with Melanie. She's really swerving around some of those curves. <laughs> but as she approaches the the other side of the dock, the main docks again, a gull swoops down and attacks her, which truly just like right there I'm already scared. Like the idea of just out of nowhere. <laughs> swooping down and just randomly attacking you. Oh, yeah. Scary stuff. It is. And gulls are pretty big in terms of the bird world, in terms of birds that you would commonly encounter on your everyday life. And they're pretty big. And that would hurt if it smacked you right in the little head. Definitely. I mean, I one time got pecked on the foot by a seagull and it hurt a lot. So get out of here, seagulls. Get get (laughs) out of here, seagulls. Seagulls are the worst. They're simply the worst. They couldn't have picked a better bird to to be the villain of this film. Hell yeah. Pure antagonism incarnate. One of my favorite seagull things is, I think there was a story in the New York Times about how the seagulls in Rome are incredibly aggressive because of tourism and there's lots of food scraps. And uh, the, the Pope will release peace doves doves that bring peace or something out of his window and there have been several instances where seagulls have immediately torn the peace doves to apart to shreds because they're so aggressive and uh they are just not having those peace doves and i just i that's the seagulls for you i mean there you go true to character in this movie yeah and 
she gets like a huge gash on her head from it. And so they head to a local restaurant where Mitch tends to her wound. And she fibs about her reasons for coming up, indicating that she knows Annie, not knowing yet that Mitch and Annie (laughs) were in a relationship, which I think is, again, sort of this like, I find it pretty charming where it's like, this is sort of a white lie where she just doesn't want to like be like, yeah, I came up to see you. But oh, man, as an know. insecure person, just watching her dig herself deeper into a <laughs> hole of lies, it was just like I was cringing into my couch, like, oh my god, I can't imagine. just stop, stop well, lying. But she just that's exactly does not it. Hesitate. She, she digs deeper and deeper and deeper. She's committed to the bit. So committed. <laughs> Mitch's mother Lydia arrives as well, having seen Mitch's car outside, and there's some really kind of great close-ups as they all sort of feel each other out in this conversation. Yeah. (laughs) Melanie returns to Annie's house and asks to spend the night since when she was there earlier, she noticed a room for rent sign. Very um, lucky that room for rent sign. Seriously, in this tiny little town, not <laughs> like I said, not even a town, the fact that there is a, a room for rent is very lucky for Melanie. But Mitch was like, in order to thank you for the, the lovebirds, we, you have to come to dinner and you have to meet, what's her name? Carol? Kathy. Kathy. <laughs> or Alice or Kathy. Lois, depending on who you ask in the town. <laughs> right. That's, that's what threw me off is because <laughs> the, they get the names wrong too. And so, so wrong. Uh, when, you're, when you're just trying to learn everyone's names, they throw a whole bunch at you. But they do. Um, yeah, he's really trying to call her out on that lie. He's like, oh, you can stay for dinner. It's fine because you're already staying in town with your friend Annie. So, like, do you have a problem with yeah. that? And he's re- he's calling her bluff. And she, he she sure goes was. with it. And the, the funny thing is, though, is that, like, she didn't even be like, yeah, I just came up to see my friend for, like, the day. She was like, I'm here for the weekend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, the, the, the bravery there. The brashness. We respect it. <laughs> hell, yeah. Hell, yeah. And she does come to dinner. And she goes to visit the farm uh, because Annie does acquiesce. She says that it's all right that she stays there. And Lydia's hens are suddenly refusing to eat. And I really like this sort of one-sided conversation that we hear with the man who sold them the feed. Yes. And we learn that it's not just Lydia's chickens that are acting up. It's their neighbors as well. But they bought different feeds. And so... One thing that I really like in this movie is that the bird protests <laughs> are not they're not all the same. Not every bird acts exactly the same. They're not uniform. Yeah. You have chickens who are doing a hunger strike. You have the seagulls who are coming in and swooping at people. Uh, you have something going on with the minor bird. Maybe it's cussing at people. Who knows? <laughs> they have a diversity <laughs> but, of tactics for their revolution. Exactly. And they're discussing Mitch's lawyering over dinner, and it's very funny in like a, oh no, kind of way to hear this 11-year-old Kathy dismissing the idea of innocent until proven guilty and the right as a, <laughs> a, the right to a fair trial as, oh sure, mom, I know all that democracy jazz. <laughs> Kathy, Kathy, Kathy. Well, maybe it's for the best that she doesn't respect the legal system. I don't know. Maybe that'll it's serve true. her going into the 60s and 70s. Yeah, that's very true. Um, also, in this world, it seems like that justice system might not be around too much longer, torn yeah. down by the bird uprising, so yeah. who knows. But thanks to an exaggerated reputation and true to form, Lydia expresses her disapproval to Mitch about Melanie. And as Melanie leaves, Mitch sort of prods her a little bit while asking to see her again in an extremely shitty way. (laughs) Yes, yeah. (laughs) It's kind of a negging scenario. Yeah, and she is clearly pissed, and she drives off. And again, you sort of get this idea of Melanie as someone who is not in a position where she has to take anyone's shit. 
Yeah. And that includes Mitch in this movie. And she doesn't take it. No, she doesn't. It's, it's just so funny that, like, it, I, it surprised me when her uh, Lydia knew about the gossip columns and the, the <laughs> gossip surrounding Melanie. I was like, that was a that was an interesting twist that she her renown for partying and or jumping into fountains, etc. has spread all the way out to this little idyllic hamlet. She's uh, notorious. She really is. And, and it's it, particularly interesting because as she says, Lydia says, like, you'd think that her dad would be able to keep her name out of the papers, but she's so rambunctious, or at least people are portraying her this way, that even with one of the major newspapers of San Francisco, I imagine not running stories about their daughter. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. You know, it's still getting out there. So really must have been some pretty intense pranks. Again, Please give us that prequel. <laughs> oh, we would love it. Even a mini series. I'd love to see a mini series adapted for Amazon or something. I think yeah. they have the money to like really do it up. HBO, Prestige, oh, yeah. Birds prequels. Peak Come on. TV. Come on. Come on. <laughs> and as she leaves, Mitch looks up and sees a bunch of shadowy birds sitting on the phone line. Ooh, <laughs> It's, again, just sort of this very ominous feeling thing where everything so far could sort of be dismissed as, like, okay, it's just, like, a weird bird coming down and swooping for some fish or something. Yeah. But they're just omnipresent. There's just birds everywhere, especially on this little bayside town, you know? Yeah. I will say, as a as a person from Austin, Texas, if anyone out there knows anything about Austin, we have these birds called grackles, and they, on a very regular basis, congregate in huge groups like that on telephone wires. Um, so I think uh, as we were growing up in Texas watching this movie in seventh grade, we were like, oh yeah, that's just grackles. That's what they do. <laughs> <laughs> that's how they congregate. But yeah, it is it is very ominous. Melanie gets back to Annie's and she's complaining about the evening and the town in general to Annie. And I love Annie in this movie. I think she rules. She's great. Uh, and this is when we get the confirmation that Annie and Mitch dated. And they sort of use this opportunity to commiserate about Lydia. And like, I really just love that they're like bonding over like how shitty the mom is. Yeah. And, like, yeah. And Mitch being like a, like a little mama's boy and everything. And yeah, Annie their psychoanalysis of her is very interesting. And uh, when is. Annie says, all due respect to F uh, Freud, I don't think it's an Oedipus thing. It's it's very interesting psychology there. Yeah, she says that it's not so much that she's jealous as much as she's just fearful of being abandoned, especially after the death of her husband, which I agree is it is very interesting psychoanalysis. And I think that it's more selfish in a way that that's her perspective, not of Annie, of Lydia. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think that that's something that'll come up is sort of this self-indulgent inward looking perspective that I think a lot of the characters have to varying degrees. Mm -hmm. And that I think is where the misanthropy of the movie sort of comes into play where it seems like Hitchcock has a very negative opinion of pretty much everyone in this movie and like just the way that people act in general because like I said people are pretty selfish not in an overt way but just in their relationships to others and the way that they are casually selfish mm -hmm. but Mitch calls Melanie there and he reiterates Kathy's invitation to her party the next day and finally she agrees to come because she doesn't want to disappoint Kathy, she says. And shortly thereafter, there's a big thud at Annie's front door, which they think is a knock, but is in fact a dead gull who just slammed into it. Yeah, It's terrifying. I don't, I don't know if you've ever had one of those incidents where 
like a bird flies into a window or something, but it is a really loud thud, and it's really shocking to see. It's very alarming. Exactly, it is very alarming, and then you walk up to it, and, like, you're just confronted by this image of death. It's very shocking, I think. Yeah. Well, so something that I do here in Chicago is I volunteer with a local group called Chicago Bird Collision Monitors. And so we travel the downtown area during migration seasons to pick up rescue and uh, salvage birds that have crashed into windows during migration because they can't really see the glass. It's not part of their evolutionary history. It's kind of a new thing in the in the time span of their existence. Right. So a lot of cities have problems with collision birds. So this is just my uh, little plug for uh, collision monitoring. And uh, there are lots of like window clings that you can put on your windows and ways to reduce bird collisions. But, you know, seagulls are, are, are very rarely the, the victims of that because they're so savvy in their year-round residence. So very right. interesting from an ornithological perspective, an amateur ornithological perspective. <laughs> That's an awesome plug. I, that sounds like a rad organization. Um, so <laughs> definitely look into that in your various cities out there. <laughs> and th- like I said, she goes, to, so it's the next day. The, she crests the hill to go to Kathy's party. And man, the view of the bay that they have as she comes over this hill is just incredible looking. I know that I've already said it twice that there are some beautiful landscapes in this movie, but good grief. It's and they really have that like all stunning. to themselves. It's just their little house right there looking out over the whole bay, the whole city. Yeah, really, really impressive. And Melanie in this moment reveals a little bit about her past, which I think is an interesting story. And it does sort of help to give you an idea of maybe why she has this toughness to her. Mm-hmm. Um, she says that her mother ran off with a hotel man when she was very young and a lot of the stories and stuff about her have been greatly exaggerated and she says that she was actually pushed into the fountain and it wasn't something that she was just dancing in and this is sort of basically says that what happened was she found herself bored because she was so like because she does come from a wealthy family and so she was sort of acting out in this sort of rich apathy and what she does now is she keeps herself busy in order to avoid this and that includes going to classes it includes doing some work and it also includes uh, apparently pranking people <laughs> so that's, you know some uh, that's of the, some of those them. are productive things to be doing and then the, the pranking still slips out there from the the boredom of being a very rich privileged person but For it sure. is it's it, it did add a layer to her character that she's you know, taking these steps to improve herself, identified that she was kind of out of control, uh, Mm -hmm. living a lifestyle that she wasn't necessarily proud of. So it definitely deepened her a little bit, rounded her out. Yeah, it makes her feel more like an actual person, like with a past and not just like a caricature of a wealthy person, you know? And they're interrupted in this moment by the children being attacked (laughs) by some more seagulls uh, during this game. These, I mean, boy, these gulls are just out of control. They are swooping in. The, this one kid gets, like, knocked to the ground and, like, a swarm of them just <laughs> land on him and are pecking the crap out of him. Seriously. Um, they are not fucking around. It reminded me of, it just, like, visually kind of reminded me of the birthday party scene of Parasite, that, like, big mm-hmm. lawn with the birthday decorations. Different kind of carnage altogether, but that just, like, struck me visually. Yeah, it has that same sort of, like, placid feel that's really fractured very suddenly. Yeah. And... Between the booze she drank and the bird attack, they convince <laughs> Melanie to stay for dinner. During which, this is the sparrow attack scene. It's 
awesome. I really, really love this scene. The sparrows swarm the house through the chimney, and it's done so well, where they hear loud bird noises, and Kathy is like, wow, would you listen to those lovebirds? And then Melanie <laughs> sees a single scout for the sparrows. Just one, just one, just scanning one. the territory. He's scoping out the situation in front of the fireplace. He gives the all clear, and the rest of the sparrows emerge in a fury. Oh my god, <laughs> just wreaking havoc, total destruction of their house. Unbelievable. Uh, it really is, and it's really funny to me how ineffectual Mitch is here as he tries to drive them out. Yes, he's, like, he's kind of waving his shirt in the air like, hey, shoo, shoo, shoo. He doesn't understand yeah. the gravity of the situation yet, no, but he will. Not yet. He, <laughs> he will. He sure will. In time. And the cops come, and for once, it's a little understandable why they do nothing to help. Yeah. Because, I mean, what are they supposed to do? The birds are gone already. And they haven't really done anything besides damage the house. So they basically shrug and they're like, sorry. Yeah. Um, and Melanie decides that in addition to staying for dinner, she's going to delay driving back to San Francisco to the next day. And she's going to stay the night at Annie's. The next morning, Lydia visits her neighbor. And this is, I think, an another, another incredibly well done scene. Yeah. This is the one you were talking about earlier with the pecked out eyes. And <laughs> it is <laughs> intense. Again, especially, you know, as someone who is so removed from the 60s and that era, you sort of have this image in your mind of like what is allowable in these older movies. And so sometimes it can be even more effective to have something so shocking like this in an older movie because you're like so just not expecting it. Yeah, and absolutely. It really nails it here. She goes to see the neighbor, and she hears from his assistant that they haven't seen him yet. And she goes in and sees that the place is a mess, and that there are some dead birds. And then she sees his feet lying in broken glass. And when she finally goes to check on him, this is when she discovers his eyeless corpse, Ooh. pecked out by birds. Wow. <laughs> Allegedly by birds. The, Allegedly. Yes, True, true. Nobody can say for sure, but <laughs> she gets confirm. the hell out of Dodge. She does. I just love the way that this is paced. What do you think about this scene in general? Not like now that you're not uh, in seventh grade. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I thought it was really effective and it was shocking to me, even as a 21st century viewer, mm. kind of inured to some of the more gory stuff in TV and film. But I think the eyes being pecked out, you, you easily could have done it where... You know, he has scratches on him, kind of the way we see the other victims of the birds later on in the film, where, where they kind of have scratches, and it, but it doesn't look too serious, but it obviously still was serious enough to cause death. But I think taking out the eyes was a, uh, that was a real power move, and uh, it, mm -hmm. it works. It works. It's very alarming. It really ups the game, and I gotta be honest, I actually have perfect vision. The reason I wear glasses is just as bird protectors. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when when we uh, there's some birds that when we handle them for collision monitoring, you are supposed to wear goggles because they will go for your shiny little eyeballs. So Ugh. it's uh it's realistic. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I've never That's run scary. into any of those, and I don't I don't yeah. carry my goggles with me. But yeah, it's <laughs> it's alarming. They will they will go for them. One other thing that I really like about this is that we're exactly halfway through. This is like 58 minutes into the movie. And this is when things are starting to pop off. And I just think that the way that this is paced is so great. You get a lot of characterization with sort of this ominous foreboding at the beginning half. And then as we get to this halfway point, 
things start to really elevate and this being sort of the tipping point this like really gruesome scene i think is just such a a perfect midpoint yeah i mean it is that kind of unreality thing where you know you just you simply couldn't process that and i think it's just really understandable the way she reacts wordlessly and Mm -hmm. gets the fuck out of there because i mean that is that's a sight that you could not comprehend with your human eyes and and (laughs) especially you know in a in a a precious little hamlet where assuming things are idyllic and 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 calm there most of the time you know she's exposed to this really really horrible thing and i uh, her her shock and alarm and deep deep distress is is really effective and really hard to watch you certainly couldn't process it with your human eyes if they got pecked the hell out by some birds (laughs) yeah there you go Oh, birds, um, leave the eyes, yeah. please. Basically, she like like we said, she is basically traumatized by this. Like She is wordless. Uh, she runs out of there. Mitch goes off to help out over there. And when they wish each other, they're like, oh, be safe. Uh, him and Melanie give each other a little smooch. So there oh. you go. The relationship is, uh, is in full bloom now. And Beautiful. As Lydia recovers at home... This is when we start to see this fear of being left alone bubbling to the surface. She's extremely scared for Kathy's safety, and when Melanie goes in to talk to her to bring her some tea and be like, hey, are you okay? There's, again, sort of this, like, feeling out the boundaries of where everyone is at that I think is just done so well. They talk about Mitch and his past and and the way that... Lydia sort of feels possessive of him, but like we said, not in a jealousy way, sort of just like, I'm, I can't be left alone. And that means that I'm going to hold these people tight. Yeah. The terror of like clinging to someone because you just wouldn't have anything left. It's, it's scary. I really enjoyed how, um, Melanie really left room in the conversation. The conversation wasn't too wordy. Uh, she didn't, try to break in and make things better and she just kind of let Lydia expound on on this trauma that she has from losing her husband and I thought this was a really nice conversation between them. Definitely. And Lydia is grateful to Melanie because Melanie offers to go pick Kathy up from school and so you sort of see this like Melanie is trying to not only understand where Lydia is coming from but also to be like, "Hey, I'm nice." At one point, she she says to Annie, like, she wouldn't be losing a son. She'd be gaining a daughter. But, you know, it's like it's it's just this very interesting sort of fear. I, I think it's not something that's explored that often in movies. And I think that they do a really great job with it here. Definitely. Um, as Melanie waits outside the school waiting for, uh, for Kathy to come out, um, the children are singing. And this this is another just incredible scene to me the source music of having the kids be the one singing instead of um instead of having like sound kind of take you out of it with score it makes it so much more effective watching the crows start to slowly engulf the ju- the jungle gym behind her oh, this yeah. is so scary to me <laughs> it is it is <laughs> yeah, the the just like progressive increase in their numbers is just every time they cut away and there's more birds, it it, it gets scarier. And then the ch- but the children singing remains the same. It's so innocuous and it just is a great contrast. I I loved it. Yeah, and she is similarly freaked out <laughs> and anticipating an attack because, uh, like we said, she's a, a, extremely competent. She's not going to sit around and just be like. 
oh, I wonder if these birds are up to no good. She she gets in there, and she runs into the school to warn Annie. And Annie, to her credit, also takes the threat very seriously. She was at the party as well. Yeah. And they evacuate the children, but the crows take this opportunity to attack uh, as the kids are being shuffled out. And again, you get this really intense scene of just, like, kids being thrown to the ground by birds and, like... Yeah, it's (laughs) just relentless. It just doesn't stop. It goes on for such a long time, and there's just... The violence against children is alarming. It It just keeps going. It just keeps going. They all sort of scatter. A lot of the kids run off to their houses, and then a couple more of them go with Annie or into the restaurant where Melanie goes. And Mitch finds Melanie there, where she's calling her dad to report the attack. And this is where she's confronted by the ornithologist. Uh, I think it's really interesting. Mrs. Bundy. Yeah. I'm curious what you think about her sort of being presented as a bit of an antagonist here, where she's very insistent about how the birds bring beauty into the world and it's man who uh you know makes it hard for things and in the middle of this she's interrupted by an order of three fried chickens which really (laughs) drives home her point so i'm curious what you think about just sort of this presentation of the ornithologist as like the stubborn one who is refusing to sort of see what's happening yeah i loved i loved mrs bundy i loved her um well, actually, uh, energy <laughs> kind of chiming into your Twitter replies and saying, well, actually, you know, the, the difference between the, the blackbird and the crow. Um, I, I love brain that. brain pans, dog. Absolutely. I, you know, that's me too. I get it. Um, but yeah, I, I think it is so interesting that the theoretical expert, you know, the person who she says it's her avocation or something. So I don't know if she's mm-hmm. officially an ornithologist or just an interested bird watcher, but for the expert in the room to be denying what's happening is is scary and it feels <laughs> it feels relevant. I, I thought this <laughs> entire scene was so great. I, it was probably my favorite scene in the movie. With all the different perspectives coming from Mrs. Bundy, who says, you know, this this can't be happening. Birds aren't capable of that. And But if they were, you know, it'd be really bad for us. <laughs> and then, you know, there's the mom who's very terrified and the, the, the kids who are uh, being frightened by this conversation. And there's the the drunk Irish guy, I guess, in the corner who's, who's uh, saying it's the end of the world. I just, all of those perspectives, I think, were perfectly encapsulated in that scene And it just, it feels really relevant to any kind of crisis, you know, right now in the age of COVID, it feels, it feels very relevant that, you know, some people are like, well, this is it, this is the end. And then some people are like, well, actually, it's only just the flu. And it just, (laughs) it felt, I was watching it and I was like, ooh, this feels too relevant to what's going on. But yeah, I I enjoyed her energy of um, correcting the record and standing up for the birds. But she did admit, like, if they did turn against us, it would be very bad. Yeah, so she and, uh, once she sees right. the evidence, I, yeah, she's right. <laughs> yeah, I, I also do want to talk about uh, that guy in the corner who's talking about the end of the world. It's really crazy to see how much influence Hitchcock had on the subgenre of slashers between Psycho, which is obviously one of the grandfathers of it, but this sort of crazy prophet of doom is another slasher hallmark. Um, mm-hmm. you, know, you see him a lot in these movies, especially in your Friday the 13th and stuff. You have crazy Ralph. Yeah. That's um, the one I just watched recently. And I was, I was thinking about that same guy. So there you go. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's really remarkable how much influence Hitchcock managed to have, but I also really like that they refer to it as the bird war, the bird <laughs> war. Oh my God. 
It's a war. <laughs> it really made me laugh that they're just like, it's the bird war. Um, I thought that was fun. But yeah, the people, like you said, there's the mom who's starting to panic and there are people arguing about what's going on. And you know, the guy who's like, oh, like I'll, I'll lead you to the freeway as soon as I finish my drink. And yeah. she's like, we need to go now. Yeah, the varied levels of urgency and the varied levels of concern just all played really well off each other in this scene. Agreed. Definitely agreed. And outside, while they're all arguing, the bird war is still happening. The bird war is happening <laughs> so, and it has escalated. A gas station attendant is attacked by more gulls and the gasoline spill causes an explosion. The birds like literally smirk from above <laughs> watching the fire. Watching. That's such a great shot of the, the line of fire between the, the gas puddle and the, the attendant. It's it's a great, mm-hmm. great shot. It really is. And as people sort of flee the restaurant, they dive down to attack them again. It's like these are like real tactical decisions made by these yeah. birds. Who's in charge here? Who is the head bird here? I'd like to know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But it is absolute havoc out there. People are like literally dying. It's uh, We've escalated from the point where, like you said, you know, People are just getting sort of pushed down and, and cut up. Like, eyes are being pecked out. There are huge fireballs happening. Like, this is a serious, serious thing. And that dismissal, not only from people like the ornithologist, but also from, like, the police who didn't take it seriously um, multiple times now in this movie, is is just really sort of indicative of why this happens. And it's it's funny, too, being like, Well, obviously, if the birds were attacking, I would know what to do and I would take it seriously. But when you put yourself in the shoes of them, it's it is kind of hard to be like, of course, this is an organized attack by birds in general. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's really, I think, really an interesting an interesting scenario to put yourself in the shoes of and try and think about how you would react. Yeah, I was like, what would what would we do? Like, what as a society, what would we do if this happened? I mean, I feel like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service might be the government agency in charge, but, like, who knows? What would we do? Mm-hmm. I don't know. We'd probably barricade ourselves in our houses just, like, for COVID. <laughs> and yeah, rightfully not, so. If it happened right now, nothing would change. Nothing would change. <laughs> it would all be the same. Just some more broken glass. Yep. And speaking of broken glass, this is the scene where Melanie takes refuge in the telephone booth and they're really swarming and attacking her and they're like they're literally like pecking through the glass and it like shatters in her face. Again, this is where um, she got injured because the glass actually broke. But Mitch runs in and he rescues her and they get back inside the restaurant and that woman who was very upset already and she was talking about how they're scaring her kids this woman is absolutely beside herself at this point and she blames melanie for the attacks claiming that they began with her arrival and that lady she sucks for real but it's <laughs> i think it's a real demonstration of how desperate people are for something to blame yeah absolutely it felt very like salem witches like you're the outsider and we don't understand who you are. And, and so we just blame you that kind of like um, fear of, of uh, newcomers. And, you know, that can also be extrapolated out to the politics mm-hmm. of today. And yeah, I, I, I really felt a strong parallel to works of art, like the crucible uh, by mm-hmm. Arthur Miller and just kind of the, the pointing fingers at witches. And in that moment, uh, Melanie was very much the witch who brought down this calamity upon them. It was, that that hysterical woman was really uh, 
Goody Proctor. That's it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> she's she's a she's another recognizable figure in a lot of a lot of art. Mm-hmm. The, the the finger pointer. But yeah, that was a that was another hard scene to watch. She was she just needed some explanation. She needed to make it make sense, if you will. Um, yeah. And it was Melanie. She was the newcomer. She was the factor that had changed, and and uh, there was no real thought put into it. It was just I'm going to point the finger. But Melanie refuses to take that line down, and she lays the smack down. All right. <laughs> she did it. She did that. And uh, and it does shock this woman sort of out of it. But Mitch and Melanie leave at this point anyway. And so uh, they go to Annie's house to find Kathy. And there are a ton of crows perched around the house, it's like on the house itself and everything. And even before we find out the bad stuff that's happened you really get this, like, ominous feeling of, like, oh, God, they're already here. Like, they're just sitting there waiting or in the aftermath. A a really sort of, it's not, I wouldn't even call it foreshadowing, but just, like, this sort of tone creation at the beginning of this scene, I think is really great. Yeah, yeah. It's like something has happened, but we don't quite know yet what it is because the birds are acting differently and they're not acting aggressive and something has gone wrong here. Yeah, and it turns out that that thing that's gone wrong is a uh, rip to Annie. Oh, <laughs> she is rest in peace. murdered by crows while protecting Kathy. And, um, you know, rip to the realist. She yeah. was uh, a great character, and uh, sorry to see her go. A but, hero. A hero. Yeah, sure was. And Mitch goes to throw a rock at the crows. <laughs> yeah, bad idea. Bad idea. But very bad idea. Let's not antagonize um, them. I also, my understanding, I think it's crows. They, like for real will hold a grudge right oh yes they are very smart they're in the corvid family along with ravens and like blue jays and there was a someone who did a like an academic who did a study i think on the university of washington campus where they had the hypothesis that crows could like recognize faces of of humans who had harmed an individual or harmed part of their family group and so this researcher i believe he wore a ronald reagan mask um, and and would antagonize the uh, colonies of crows on campus, and they discovered that it not only it not only affected not only did the crows who were antagonized remember the Ronald Reagan mask, but the rest of the colony did too. They had ways to spread that information, so even birds who didn't directly experience an attack by Ronald Reagan knew to avoid this face. And so they are smart, and yeah, don't fuck around with wow. crows. That, uh, that is, first of all, very scary and impressive. But also, um, I like to imagine seeing someone in a Ronald Reagan mask just kind of like running through a field <laughs> of crows. Yeah, yelling at them or cursing <laughs> at them or something. Get out of here, trickle-down crows! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, an appropriate mask to wear. But yeah, I yes. mean, that's I'm always nice to my neighborhood crows. I'm always like, hey guys, how y'all doing? Because I don't want them to remember my face and spread it to the rest of the crows that, that I'm an evildoer. That's right. That's just a pro tip for me, a non-ornithologist. <laughs> well, Melanie, luckily for Mitch, stops him from antagonizing them. <laughs> yes, <laughs> So. Yes. Who knows how this would have shook out had he, in fact, thrown the rock. But Melanie, again, is uh, the smart one here and, and stops them. And they get Kathy, and they go back to the Brenner farm, and they barricade themselves in there. But wave after wave of bird attacks happen here. I really like this scene as well, where they're literally, like, almost breaching the boarded-up entryways. Like, it's so aggressive that they're pecking through the wood, and they're getting in through the glass and everything. It's just really uh, fantastic. And 
the way that it starts again, it sort of starts off a little innocuous where it's just a few tweets and bird songs and then you hear a ton of fluttering and cause and it's really I think a great demonstration of the importance of sound design. Yeah. It's so loud and so chaotic and it just perfectly matches the the frenetic energy of those zillions of birds you know, outside trying to get in. And as we've seen yeah. the, the havoc that they can wreak inside, it's just, it is, it has great sound design. It's, it's, it's very scary. <laughs> very effective <laughs> yeah, horror. It really is. And uh, Mitch, his hand is wounded in the attack and the birds managed to cut the power, <laughs> which I don't know how they did it, but it's very impressive. Incredible. They and found the breaker and they just switched <laughs> that bad baby off. They got the heaviest bird to sit on it. <laughs> And during this lull in the bird attacks, while the power is is out, Melanie investigates a fluttering sound in the attic. And it's really, really tense as she sort of ascends in the darkness. It feels a lot like Psycho when um, the detective whose name is escaping me, uh, when he's walking up the stairs and he gets pushed down. But Mm -hmm. nevertheless, uh, it's really, it's just really awesome. And she finds out that it was some birds that had somehow gotten in, I guess, like, through the roof or something, and they attack, trapping her in this room until Mitch pulls her out. And yeah. this this scene of her being attacked in that room is pure horror. It's, <laughs> like, it's brutal. I, it's so brutal scary. again. And it's, you know, you... Yeah. It's hard to tell. I don't know. Maybe you have a different perspective on this. But to me, it seemed like, you know, at times maybe she could have gotten that door open, but she was kind of throwing herself on the sword to protect the rest of the people in the house from Mm. the birds really getting down. I don't know what you think about that. If she just physically couldn't get the door open or if it was like a conscious choice to protect, protect the rest of the family. You know, I don't know because to me it it felt sort of just like panic. Like when, when something like that is happening and there's bird, like the weight of the bird is getting thrown up against the door and you can't really get a handle on it. And like, she does sort of just, like, let go of it and leaves it shut and, like, kind of collapses there. Um, And it definitely, I mean, she's certainly been willing to sort of take the heat and be the one to make it make the important things heard and and to go as she stops to pick up a little kid who's being attacked earlier in the movie. So it's definitely seems possible to me that this is a conscious choice. But whatever the interpretation is, like you definitely feel terrible for Melanie in this moment. Yeah, it's awful. And she's just, you know, everyone else is asleep. They're they're just not paying attention and she's just alone up there. Yeah. <laughs> Would be a truly horrible way to go. Yeah, and Mitch does finally hear it and pull her out, but she is badly injured and traumatized, where she's like completely silent in this moment. Yeah, and like catatonic almost. Yeah, very understandable. I think that it's... I'm curious how much of that is just actual Tippy Hedren being scared shitless because she didn't know they were going to be real. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, my God. Can't imagine. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's terrifying. And Mitch insists that they're all going to drive to San Francisco to get Melanie to a hospital, going outside to sort of ready her car for the escape. And... An extremely menacing crowd of birds has quietly gathered around the Brenner house, watching, waiting. Yep, that mix of crows and seagulls, that's a, that's a oh. terrifying combination. That's right, that's uh, the heavies, the brains <laughs> and the heavies. It is, it is, oh my god. And it's not Mitch the chickens, the... it's not the lovebirds. No, definitely not. That's, so that's the other thing, is that the lovebirds are still caged up, and so Kathy is still intent on these being her pet which i think is a bold strategy but questionable decision from kathy here (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Definitely. But Mitch gets in and he checks the radio since the power to the house is still out. And he hears reports of the bird attacks on nearby communities as well, including Santa Rosa. And so the like this is the first moment that they're hearing of it spreading. And like the idea of that being so powerless to stop it, you know, like the, especially at a time in like in the 60s where you can't like call up people on your cell phone and be like, holy crap, I just got attacked by birds. Yeah, <laughs> like, board up your windows, like take cover. Yeah, the spreading is just it, it feels reminiscent of like a, a, a virus type of movie where it's it, mm-hmm. you think it's like a contained thing and then you just hear about it. It's still moving outwards and it just makes it all the more terrifying. Definitely. And, you know, she, he hears that they've set up roadblocks to sequester the town and they're considering bringing in the military and the escalation is intense. It is. I do wonder what the roadblocks were meant to accomplish. I'm not sure they could keep the birds out, but, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a strategy. Yeah. So to me, it actually felt more the opposite where, like, if the birds were attacking something or someone in the town, they wanted to keep them there. Yeah. And it's more it. like... That's terrifying. Yeah. You're, like, locked in with them. Yeah, even exactly. worse. Even yeah. worse. Kathy does grab the lovebirds from the house while Mitch and Lydia escort Melanie past the massive birds and into the car. Honestly, an amazing, amazing performance by Tippi Hedren in the last few scenes here. Oh, uh, like, when, when, she, she, when she yells no and mm-hmm. starts to process that there are birds are all around her from her catatonic state, that was, like, a gut-wrenching noise. Oh, man. Oof. It's so good. And they do manage to get her in. And the car slowly drives away as thousands of birds watch them from above. And a new dawn breaks through the clouds. The dawn of the planet of the birds. <laughs> yes. The bird war is upon us. Oh, God. It's, it's terrifying. It really is. So many birds in that shot. It's, it's perfect. It really is. I, I love this ending. And I mean, so much of it is like people have sort of managed to grow as people just in this movie. Like I said, when we are introduced to all of the major characters, we sort of see this self-absorbed, uh, self-absorbed nature that each of them have, where Tippi Hedren is bored and addicted to these time-consuming jokes, and Rod Taylor is self-righteous, and uh, he's very arrogant, and the ex-fiance is sort of like, I don't want to say she's like wallowing in self-pity, but she's definitely like, I still kind of have a flame for Mitch, and uh, yeah, you know, I'm she sad about the town. way. Yeah, she moved to town, my goodness. Yeah, and Lydia, the mom, is, is you know, t- we've talked about her fear of loneliness already, and so people are either dead or learning to grow, which I think is really yeah. interesting, but... Yeah. Uh, I really love the moment where Tippi Hedren kind of leans into Lydia and you see kind of the look being exchanged between them. And, you know, we have the we have the setup of Melanie kind of not having her mother in her life and not even knowing where she is. And Lydia's fear of her mortal fear of some woman coming and taking away her son. And you see both of them kind of like lean into each other physically and just emotionally it's it's i thought that was a really nice moment of of lydia holding holding on to possibly her future daughter-in-law i mean who knows but um, who knows both of them finding something that they needed in that moment and breaking down a wall right it was i really really nice moment definitely and it is one of several nice moments in this movie and i'll (laughs) use that as the segue (laughs) to say (laughs) we've reached the point now Lacey, where we talk about why this is the best horror movie ever made and uh, I'll let you kick us off. The best horror movie ever made. 
I mean, first of all, Mrs. Bundy had it right when she was listing off the uh, extreme numbers of birds in the world, you know, X billions just in the United States and even more than that uh, across the entire world. If there were a bird uprising, A, the seagulls would lead it, and B, we would not have a chance. (laughs) Incredibly realistic, incredibly realistic uh, scenario in this film, assuming seagulls plotting against humanity. That is terrifying. That is a scenario that we should all fear. Truly, truly all fear. Birds are dinosaurs, as we know. You know, they're Mm -hmm. descended from dinosaurs. They can fly. They roam the earth freely with no boundaries. They recognize no countries, recognize no borders. (laughs) As Mrs. Bundy would would have underlined, like, we we wouldn't stand a chance. And and if you watch this film and see your future, then, you know, I think it's done its job and and we should all beware and stuck up on... uh, plywood for your windows (laughs) i I totally agree to me this is the best horror movie ever made because it is it feels very real especially where like god i mean this was done before climate change was really a a topic and you know who knows how far before uh, the birds have had enough and the idea of this being sort of like a proto slasher before they were big it kind of is like the the nebulous concept of birds is the slasher villain, I think, is really interesting. And not only that, it's an absolutely beautiful movie. I think that the landscapes are great. The Blu-ray copy that I watched, the restoration is just incredible. The way that the sounds are handled in it, I think is super effective and pretty innovative. The pacing I've already mentioned, I absolutely love. I think it's great. And there are some relatively shocking images in it for a horror movie from the 60s. I think that all these things work together really well with the great performances by these actors to create a movie that's just absolutely incredible. And the fact that I don't trust birds in my day-to-day life doesn't hurt, doesn't hurt in terms (laughs) of it being an effective horror movie for me. And so for that, it makes it the best horror movie ever made. Lacey, I want to thank you so much for coming on. This was an absolute blast. I know that you're not really big on social or anything, so I wanted to at least give you a chance to shout out something that you're enjoying lately oh, as a plug. sure. Yeah, I'm not really, not really much on the social media, but I, after what happened to the black birder in Central Park named Christian Cooper, where there was a, a white woman who aggressively called the police on him in a very racially motivated um, crime and assault. Um, There's been a lot of great amplification of black voices in the sciences and especially in birding. So there's a, there's a great organization called outdoor Afro uh, that connects black people with nature and uh, conservation experiences, recreational experiences outside. Um, And I think they do great work. And there's also a great Instagram account that was created in the response to Christian Cooper's attack in Central park and it's called black af in stem so black as fuck in science technology engineering and mathematics and they uh hosted a great hashtag event called black birders week and i really recommend that people check out all the great images of black naturalists and uh black ornithologists and black bird watchers um and it's great and and the birds are for all of us and I, I, I love the work they're doing, and I think it's it's really important right now and really, really cool to see these voices be amplified. Hell yeah. That sounds absolutely dope, and definitely people go check that out. Wow. Well, my plugs are going to sound really selfish now, but... <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, not at all. <laughs> you you can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL or GergHef if you want the personal account, and you can check out LittleHorrorPHL.com. 
where you can find links to the merch and all the social places and everything. And yeah, definitely Best Little Horror House firmly on the side of Black Lives Matter. So definitely go check those things out. And uh, if you're not into birding, maybe amplify the voices of black horror fans or something. So, hell yeah, you know, uh, do what you can out there. Do what you can. And that's pretty much it. For, oh, leave a rating and review, too, if you want. Five stars. Well, Five stars. <laughs> um, that's it for me. Thanks again, Lacey. This was really great. Bye. Bye.